Hey y'all! Welcome to Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. I'm Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. Each episode, I bring you stories, tips, and tricks from foragers and wildcrafters around the world to empower you on your wild path. Please remember to practice safe foraging by being 100% positive of your identification before consuming anything wild. Happy listening! Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all around us. Hey y'all, this is Abby Artemisia of the Wander School, and this is Wander Forage and Wildcraft. This is episode two, and I'm starting off on this journey to interview all of the foragers I can find <laughs> because we're all so different and we do different things and we're also unique in interesting ways. And so I want to capture a little bit of each one's personality, what we forage, what our ideas are on ethical and sustainable foraging and give you as much education as we can. So I thought a great idea would be to start off with myself and answer the questions that I plan on asking all the other foragers and my friend and ethnobotanist and all-around amazing person, Becky Beyer, also co-founder of our Sassafras School, offered so kindly to ask me those questions. And I agreed because I thought that would make it more fun and interesting for you. So we're going to jump right in. Hi, Becky. Oh, hey, Abby. I'm so excited to be your interviewer today. Thanks, and thanks so much for being here. Oh, no problem. I'm excited about it. So let's introduce you to the world through your podcast you've created, and will you tell us a little bit about what you do, Abby? Sure, yeah. Technically, <laughs> the words that I use to describe myself or my title are botanist, herbalist, and professional forager. And the professional forager one kind of throws people off sometimes. Can relate. <laughs> yeah. um, but really all that means is that, one, hopefully I know what I'm doing when I'm foraging. And two, that sometimes I will sell what I forage to places like restaurants or herbal companies or things like that. And... Three, that I make my own herbal products, so value-added products from the plants that I forage. Very cool. How did you get into foraging? That's such a wild thing for people today. When Do you get that reaction when you tell people you're a forager? I do get that reaction, yeah, along with the, how the heck do you support yourself foraging? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which well, how is, did you get into it? Yeah, so good question. How I got into it is kind of a longer and interesting story. So I'll try and abridge it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, 
Yeah, how I got into it was, um, you know, really just through my love of nature and being outside and being allowed to be outside as a kid and run around and explore. And then when I was, um, let's see, I guess in my early 30s, um, I had been in multiple car accidents and ended up herniating a disc in my back and it was super painful. And one of the ways that I recovered was through going out and taking walks in the woods. Awesome. Yeah. And so at first, you know, I could only walk a few minutes down the street and just make it to the edge of the woods. And mm. so I had this aspiration to get back into the woods because, you know, that's like my lifeblood. It's so hard for me because that is my lifeblood to see people who are so disconnected that um, they don't hardly ever even go outside except for making it from the car to the house, you know, mm -hmm. or the car to work. And, um, I know that we've talked about this before, you know, in other cultures, some cultures don't even have a word for nature because it's not seen as separate. Oh, good point. Yeah. And so Love for that. me, that's really how I feel. Um, for me, it's not a separate entity. It is a part of who I am and a need for me every day. And so I notice with myself, if I start getting into a funk, mm -hmm. like the people who know me really well mm -hmm. will say something like, Hey, have you been outside today? <laughs> you need to go take a walk in the woods. Mm -hmm. So that was really a big part of my healing journey. And so I would go out in the woods every day and I was in Ohio and there was really nobody teaching this stuff in Ohio. So I went out with my Peterson's field guide nice. <laughs> and any other books I could find and I would slowly identify the plants that I was seeing and then figure out what kind of food or medicine they were. And so I'm a lot self-taught, which I feel like has really helped me in my business as an educator because although I have the botany degree to back it up, I also come to it from you know, a very novice perspective in mm. the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so I understand and hopefully we'll always remember what it's like to be coming into that with little to no knowledge of plants. Yeah. And, and really knowing the way your knowledge will develop because there's no programming because you designed it yourself. Yeah. That's really cool. Thanks. Awesome. And I think that you've kind of answered part of this question, which is the why. So mm. you've kind of answered how, but why do you forage? And it sounds like it's really healing for your, your personal soul. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that definitely is a big part of it. Um, but I would say, I mean, besides the basics, which are super important too, right? Free mm -hmm. food and free medicine. Yes. Yes. And so that's probably the number one reason that I forage. 
along with just wanting to be healthy and Mm. self-care and take care of my body and know where my food and medicine is coming from and um, that it hasn't been contaminated. That's a big thing in the herbal world now is ordering herbs and you don't really know who's harvesting them. Or how old they are. Or how old they are. potency, Mm -hmm. right? And then they can be contaminated with other things or um, they can be old and brittle and not very powerful anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, along with all of that is the connection, having Mm -hmm. the connection to the plants. And that's really what feeds me. And it's so um, fulfilling to me to take a medicine and know that I foraged this plant, especially if I foraged it somewhere where I've been foraging it for years Mm -hmm. previously. So to have that connection and then from there to know that I did the processing of that plant and that I made the medicine and that I blessed it through every step of that and gave my gratitude for that plant And then I'm tasting it like I can really taste the difference in Mm. that medicine and the vitality. And it feels stronger and more medicinal than something I just buy in the store that I don't know where it's coming from. That's such a good point. You're putting a kind of personal touch on everything that you do, which is pretty special today when we think about the globalized world, you know? It really is, yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good question, too, is about how we pick and and how much we're taking from nature, but how do you define ethical foraging in your personal practice? Yeah, that's a good question too. Glad I came up with that one. (laughs) Right. Such a big question. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I really do feel like that's one of the most important questions in foraging today. And it's also one of the hardest to answer, right? So true. Yeah. Because I used to say, okay, well, Mm only take 20%. So the 20% rule, right? So of anything you find, only take 20% of what is there, right? With the caveat that, you know, some plants are rare or endangered. And so we wouldn't want to take 20% of those because it may be that you see a stand of 10 plants, but they're the only 10 plants in the forest. Mm, Good point. Or it may be, which we'll probably talk about in another minute here, but like where we live in Appalachia is one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. So it may look like that plant is really prolific, but it's really only prolific here. So I don't want to take 20% of it here either. Like putty root, right? Yeah. Oops, our native orchids. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or lady slipper. Ooh, yeah, that's a rough yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. So another orchid that has been popular throughout history for medicine, but that most herbalists don't harvest anymore because mm-hmm. it really isn't prolific, even though it may seem so here. But so my ultimate answer to that question is I feel like really the only way to forage ethically is 
to create that connection with the plants and do your research mm-hmm. for each so. plant, kind of like a plant specific ethical plan. Yeah, exactly. That makes so much so sense. really good to know the plants. So know them where they live so you can see them from year to year, really how prolific are they, but then also research them. And the resource I always tell people for that is United Plant Savers mm-hmm. and yeah, their website. I'm a member. You can join really cheaply and support the great work that they're doing to protect these endangered herbs. Um, But they have great lists on their website of which of the herbs are at risk and which could be at risk. Which is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such, that's a great answer. And I think the more and more we delve into the hard questions in the worlds of herbalism and wildcrafting, the more we realize how complex the answers are and that there's so much nuance. And that's tough. It's tough to figure that out. So good job kind of figuring a way to communicate about that plant-specific ethical foraging. Thanks. So also, you know, a lighter question, but what's your favorite plant or mushroom to forage? Ooh. I know. <laughs> I love when people ask me that. It's great. Right. I know. It's such a hard question. Um but the one that I always come back to is elderberry. Oh, wow. I have actually never asked you that. So I'm curious, as your friend, very excited Aww. to hear that. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just feel such a strong connection to elderberry. Um, I wrote about this recently, but my friend Don Combs, who's an herbalist in Ohio, I first, I think she's the first person I... Oh, maybe the second person I ever heard talk about this, but I love what she said. And she called elderberry our native goji berry or acai berry. It's this super herb, but it's native. So instead of ordering goji or acai berries from way far away, you know, we have this super immune booster um, Mm. right nearby. And so... When I was working at a farm in Ohio, Carriage House Farm, um, I was taking my first tour around the farm, and we were in an ATV, and I saw this giant patch of white out of the corner of my eye, and I was like, stop, what's that? And it was amazing. It was actually one of the first times I'd ever seen elderberry in the wild, Mm -hmm. but it was about a quarter to a half acre of elderberry in bloom. Wow. Were they planted or or no, they were wild and it was crazy because they had no idea that they were there because they were growing in the river bottom land where nothing else grows except the things that were growing there were giant ragweed, which was growing about 10 feet high amongst the elderberry and um, actually stinging nettle and wood nettle. Beautiful. Yeah. So it was super cool because then we could maintain this wild crop and harvest it and it needed almost no maintenance. So it's a super great cash crop that will grow in an area where almost nothing else will grow. Mm-hmm. So especially floody, soggy areas. Right. We have a lot of around where we yes, live in Western we North Carolina. We do. Yeah. yeah, but I just love elderberry um because one, I mean, elderberry syrup is so tasty. Yum. <laughs> I make gallons of it every year. But it's just so 
health supporting and it has so much vitamin C and it does this really magical thing where it supposedly can actually keep the flu virus from entering the cells. Yeah, I saw they put out a study this year that it's specifically really effective against 13 different types of influenza type A, I believe. I'll have oh, to double check that, yeah. but this it's amazing that that's so powerful that even science can't deny it. Right. <laughs> it is amazing. Yeah, and and um, you know, before this interview, we were talking about how uh, the legalities of herbalism, how you can't make claims about any herbs. And so <laughs> elderberry is actually one of the few that you can make claims about that it does prevent the flu and fight the flu and shorten the duration of cold and flu by several days um, because it's actually been tested by the company that makes Sambucol in Israel. Very cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Thanks for teaching me, Abby. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. And so what are some of your tips? I love that elderberry is your favorite plant and it is a little challenging to harvest, maybe more so than some other berry plants. Mm -hmm. What are your tips for getting all the stems off and why would that be something you need to worry about? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> this is a... Hmm, kind of contradictory thing and I'm still researching it um, about how to get the stems off or do you even need to really get the stems off because there's a lot of conflicting information out there and I will say that honestly I don't take the stems off mine. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So... I'm not super picky about mine either. I'm like, a few are probably good for us. They challenge the system a little bit. Is that kind right. of what they're they're thinking with that? Um, concept? You know, my feeling is that, so this, the whole plant does have some cyanide in it, mm -hmm. including the berries themselves when they're uncooked mm -hmm. and the seeds. But we do actually consume small amounts of cyanide in other fruits that we eat, um, especially Definitely. rose family fruits. And mm -hmm. so, um, a lot of seeds of those fruits and cyanide is also medicinal in small quantities. So my feeling is that one, you're cooking it. So it's deactivating some of that cyanide. Is cyanide water soluble, correct? I'm pretty sure it is. That's a good question. Yeah. That I'm going to have to look up. <laughs> I, think it, I think that's why heat helps mitigate its That makes issues. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Where alcohol extracts can be a little bit more challenging to the system mm -hmm. with cyanide-containing compounds. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, also that a small amount is medicinal and a small amount won't hurt us. So I've been consuming this for years and I've never noticed any contraindications for me, any side effects. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that a lot of people do go to the trouble of taking those stems off. And um, one person, my boss, <laughs> my old boss, the owner of Carriage House Farms, um, Richard Stewart, he would harvest the whole umble. And so, so people harvest it in different ways. So an umble is a flat top cluster of flowers or fruits. And, um, I was actually just talking about this in an interview yesterday about yarrow because mm -hmm. that's the way yarrow grows. Um, also queen Anne's lace, if you're familiar with that. So it looks kind of like an inside out umbrella. Yeah. Basically umbrella. umbrella. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's how I remember it. So yeah. Um, so 
yeah, you can just harvest that whole umbel. And so I'll cut that stem right underneath that umbel where all the little tiny stems start coming out. Mm -hmm. And um, then he'll turn them upside down onto a cookie sheet, like a cookie pan, and freeze them that way. So Hmm. stick that whole pan into the freezer. And then once it comes out, those stems pretty much just break off real easily. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. I have generally picked through them by hand or using um, a small forked comb mm-hmm. like a little yeah. comb for a cat but with like fleas oh, or something that's you can smart. comb the berries off that's really smart yeah. yeah so um yeah but i usually just don't even worry about taking them off and honestly i um the way that i process mine usually is to freeze them and so a lot of times what happens i put them in a just a freezer ziploc bag and what will happen is a lot of them will just fall off in that freezing process and so i'll take them out and they'll be in the bottom of the bag so Mm -hmm. i don't get a whole lot of stems anyway nice um but i think it's good to talk about too you know the elder flower is also medicinal Mm -hmm. and um Plus, it's becoming really popular to make liqueurs out of it. Like, that's what they make St. Germain from, mm-hmm. which is um, a European liqueur. And they're making all kinds of sodas from elderflower now in Europe. Um, but it's also medicinal, especially for fevers. Mm-hmm. And so it's a great one for kids. Like, when I was talking about yarrow yesterday, I was saying um, with kids, I would probably choose elderflower over yarrow because yarrow is so crazy bitter. And it's so drying too. Yeah, for a that too. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good idea. Yeah, that's I a never good point. thought to kind of think of those as in alignment, but even physically, they're both small, white, mm-hmm. star-shaped flowers. They are. That's very energetically interesting. It is. Yeah. yeah. So um, I tell people if you're going to harvest the elderflower. You want to harvest it carefully because um, unless you have a huge, crazy abundance of elderberry around you and you don't need to worry about having enough um, berries to harvest, you want to be careful about you how you harvest it otherwise because it's the ovary of the flower that becomes that fruit and that's true usually of mm-hmm. fruits so if you harvest the whole flower including the ovary then you're not going to get an elderberry later so if you have a basket with you and you can very carefully bend that whole umble and branch over into your basket you can kind of just gently use your fingers to comb as a comb yeah they come off a little easier than yeah (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah. and comb through those flowers and then you'll just get the petals and if you're gentle enough the ovaries will stay on the plant wow that's that's so cool yeah it's a pretty cool way to do it and i say very gently bend them over because i found that elderberry shrubs are very brittle they are yeah Yeah, and so they break very easily and i always get sad because inevitably when you're harvesting you'll break a branch or two and i'm like yeah (laughs) i feel super sad about it one of my favorite things to do is if you keep the elderberry twigs they Mm -hmm. root incredibly well at different times oh, of year, you nice. can always stick them in a glass of water and they will actually, without rooting hormone, root and you can That's replant awesome. them. That's awesome. So if you so accidentally cool hit one with the lawnmower, like yeah. we do at our house sometimes, mm-hmm. you suddenly have a hundred new baby friends to reroot. So Awesome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I do want to mention, you know, I think it's super important to know that 
the whole plant is actually poisonous, Mm -hmm. including the uh, uncooked berries. So true. So you don't want to tincture those raw berries and then be like, I'm just going to drink a whole bunch of this right now. Well, you can, you can tincture the berries actually. And I think it's the alcohol does something to deactivate that poison Mm -hmm. because I have definitely tinctured the berries and they're good. Mm -hmm. And I love tincturing them in brandy because it's super tasty. But, um, I know that I never know how to pronounce his name, but Pascal Boudar, Boudar, what? There you go. Hero yeah. of wild food. We love Pascal Dufaudard. Yeah. He's Belgian, I believe, right? I can't remember, but yeah. I know that he actually ferments the unripe berries. Wow. And I guess the fermentation changes them chemically, and then you can actually ingest them. So it's so interesting, the phytochemistry of plants and how doing things like cooking them, boiling them, um, tincturing them in alcohol or fermenting them mm-hmm. can change that phytochemistry to so true. make them not be poisonous anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, the way, what do they say? You know, poison, the dose is the determinant. So Definitely. Sometimes a little bit of poison is great, but right. too much is not good. Exactly. Well, thanks for those great tips on harvesting elderflower. I usually just cut the whole elm bell myself on mm-hmm. heavily laden bushes. Yeah. But I feel like I want to try your method. It sounds much more sustainable. Cool. Um, so it sounds like you've given us a few ideas for what you can do with elderberries. Mm-hmm. You said you tincture the berries. What other things do you do with elderberry? How do you preserve it or prepare it? Right. Um, well, one other option is to dry the berries. So mm. if you have a dehydrator, if you just leave them out, they tend to mold. True. So they do need some air circulation and a little bit of heat usually. Um, and that's a nice thing to do if you don't have a whole lot of freezer space, which often I come up against. Yeah, can relate. <laughs> um, but also if you can process them as soon as possible into formulas, like a tincture, um, that's a great way to go where you don't need as much space to store it. But my favorite thing to do with elderberries is what I was talking about earlier, which is make elderberry syrup. Oh, yes. Yes. And I will put a link in the notes to my elderberry syrup recipe on the blog. I love your elderberry syrup. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I make mine as an oxymel. And so... We're actually teaching a class on this this weekend. On Saturday, <laughs> yeah. 11 to 2 in Barnardsville, North Carolina. Check yeah. it out on But this website. will probably come out <laughs> after that. But we're, we have been having so much interest in it that we have been doing it annually. And I'm also going to make a video class on it. So that will be up on the website eventually. So keep awesome. a lookout for that. Yes. Um, and I can put a link if I remember. And if not, just put it in a comment and ask me for uh-huh. that. Um, but yeah, I'll put the link in for the elderberry syrup recipe. And um, I that one is a really basic recipe. I combine mine when I make it with sumac berries and rose hips. Yum. Yeah, so it's like a super, I used to call it high C, but <laughs> I came from, you know, the 80s and 90s where everybody drank high C. I drank high C as a child. Oh, yeah. You know, got the tail end of the 80s there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but... Um, Yeah, so they're all jam-packed with vitamin C, so that's how I do mine. But you can make it just with elderberries and then um, 
I do mine, basically make a decoction. Mm. And so that is a tea that is simmered. And then I'll add vinegar and honey to that. And I really mm. like the taste of that blend. Oh, we love that. I love to throw it with salsa sometimes just to enjoy yes. it as a, as a homemade soda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also I a do great that alcohol-free too. remedy, which is always mm-hmm. nice for folks that don't want to ingest alcohol or for children. Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. That is so cool. Well, I'm excited to see that recipe because I make mine a little differently and it's so fun to try the different elderberry syrups of your friends. Yeah, it is. I love that too. Yes. So you've mentioned that elderberry, you know, you met it in Ohio, but it also grows here where we live in Western North Carolina. What is, how would you describe our region um, from the perspective of a forager? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the main reasons that I came to this region is because of the biodiversity. I was really attracted by the biodiversity and it is one of the three most biodiverse places in the temperate world. Whoa. Yeah. And that's super amazing. I love telling people that. And, um, it's under debate which one it is in those three, (laughs) but constantly changing, but yeah, it's just so amazing. And so that would be the top thing I would say to describe this region is biodiverse. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think part of that is that there's so many different microclimates and Mm. habitats here. Good point. So, um, you know, definitely the mountains. And so if you go, up in the mountains, the habitat and the plant life is going to be so different than down here in the hollers. I mean, we're kind of in the middle, but, um, it's going to be so different in each place. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's pretty cool. And then the geology that we have here really makes the soil more acidic. And so we see a lot of evergreens here. So, Um, things like pine trees and hemlocks, the hemlock tree, not the poison hemlock, Mm -hmm. although we do get that too sometimes. Um, but also things like rhododendrons and magnolias that like that more acidic soil too. Mm -hmm. And also lots of orchids because of the acidic soil. So lots of things like that, but also so many edibles and medicinals. Yeah. I guess given our climate, a lot of invasive plants have deeply rooted in Mm -hmm. our area and conveniently enough, many of them are very abundant and easy (laughs) to harvest edibles and medicinals. Yeah. However, I will say I see a lot less invasives here in Appalachia, especially our region of Appalachia, than I do in the Midwest. Mm, good point. I've not been in the Midwest much. That's really interesting to know. Yeah, it's Very true. Cool. So um, that's really nice to look out into the forest and see big open areas under the canopy. Mm-hmm. And um, so many edibles and medicinals. It's pretty pretty amazing. It is amazing. (laughs) And of course, we also have lots of European plants that have naturalized here too. Yeah. And of course, one of our favorite plants from Asia, kudzu. Yes. (laughs) One of the the plant everybody loves to hate. Right. (laughs) Which is also a friend. Exactly. And in the right way, in the right time and place. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. And invasive plant medicine and invasive edibles are some of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just just visiting my friend Nancy Basket, who I have to get on this podcast for sure, but I just love the way that she has 
found to utilize kudzu mm-hmm. with making baskets and paper and all kinds of things out of kudzu. It's super awesome. Even her house, right? Yeah. yeah kudzu bale cabins. Yeah. yeah. That is so cool. I'm, I'm so glad that you love Nancy as much as I do. Yes. Oh, man. Well, that's a great way to talk about Southern Appalachia. Um, and so, you know, you kind of told us about how you got into foraging. What are some tips you can offer someone who's interested in becoming a forager or for beginning foragers? Yeah. Well, beginning foragers are most of my students. <laughs> so I have a fair amount of experience and um, also, again, being self-taught. So I think my biggest bit of advice would be just to take it slow and really work on foraging that foraging, your foraging <laughs> connection. Um, so the way that I recommend to do that is to start with one plant because I know that when people come on my plant walks with little to no knowledge, it can be extremely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so I would rather someone know one plant really well than 10 to 20 plants, not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so pick one plant that you feel a connection with, preferably one that grows really close to you in your yard, out your back door, in the woods down the road, and start learning everything you can about that plant. So watch it through all the seasons Mm -hmm. and sit with it, eat it. I talk about simples. So make a tea if it lends itself to tea, make a tea out of just that one herb and drink it for multiple days in a row. And then don't just eat it and go about or drink it and go about your business. Like actually sit and notice what you feel in your body and in your spirit. So how does it make you feel? You know, where do you feel it in your body? And does it bring up any emotions for you? Mm, mm. Um, because we're all such individuals. It could be totally different for you than for somebody else. Definitely. And write those things down and then do research with as many different sources as you can and cross-reference um, until you feel like you I love, you know, double negatives. But till you can't not know that plant. So yeah. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. It's funny. I felt so much fear when I first started foraging and then Mm -hmm. there's a point where you reach when you've, you have a real person teaching you as an expert. It's like, it's so nice to have that person saying, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid. Yeah. There's a lot of fear. So I remember learning from my various teachers over the years and being like, thank you for telling me I don't have to be afraid. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I always, Talk about cautious optimism. Yeah. Yeah. So make sure that you have positive identification. And of course, as we both know from working with Alan Muscat, (laughs) the best guide has two legs. Yes. (laughs) And the best thing you can do is ask. So um, not to pump us up here, but whoever you're, wherever you are and whoever you're around, find somebody knowledgeable if you can and learn from them. Mm -hmm. Because the easiest way to learn, which I didn't have this opportunity in the beginning, but is to go out with somebody who knows what they're doing. Ditto. I feel like when we started this, though, it's gaining more and more Mm -hmm. popularity. And it was just harder, like 10 to 15 years ago to find 
definitely people to study with that were doing this as a profession. Yeah, and we're lucky enough to be in a hub of foraging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, all the peers is great. Yeah, so we're it always is. learning. It's it so, is so crazy. And um, one good resource too is Eat the Weeds, and I should put that in the notes too, but. Um, eattheweeds.com with green dean with green dean and he has a whole page of foragers so whatever area you're in Mm -hmm. there's hopefully somebody listed there who um is a foraging resource so check that out yeah and internationally there's the uh, association of foragers and now they have an american um section i didn't know that alan's on it okay well i'll have to put that in the notes too there you go very cool so I think um, one more big question for you is just, what do you think it's important for us to know about you or your experience with foraging? Is there anything we haven't gotten to touch on that you feel like you really want to share? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, once again, my business name, The Wander School, is an acronym that stands for the Wild Artemisia Nature Discovery Empowerment and Reconnection School. Mm. And those things are all super important to me and really my mission. And so that's what I would say about foraging is if you're going to do it or you feel interested, you know, again, cautious optimism and positive identification, but jump in because this is a way that you can empower yourself with free food and free medicine and create that connection and reconnection. Mm -hmm. And I truly feel like it's one of, if not the most healing thing in the world that we can do mm-hmm. is to connect with the plants and connect with nature. And, um, unfortunately in our fast paced first world culture, people are getting further and further from that. Yeah. And, um, all kinds of diseases caused from sedentariness and stress and those kinds of things, um, malnutrition mm. are running rampant. And so foraging and simply being outside in nature are easy, cheap, and free ways to heal that. Mm -hmm. So that would be my soapbox for the day. (laughs) Um, But yeah, as as far as uh, learning more about me and what I do, thewanderschool.com, this podcast, Mm -hmm. subscribe to that. And um, my upcoming online classes, our school, the Sassafras School, those are all good ways to go. And my brand new book, which just came oh out. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell us about your book, Abby, yeah. real quick before we wrap up today. Yeah, my book, The Herbal Handbook for Homesteaders, that was just published a few days ago. So it's super exciting. It's up on Amazon. You can find it there. Please leave me a review if you buy it there. And any day now, it will also be up on the website for purchase if you would like to support me more and get a signed copy. Well, that is amazing. Thank you so much, Abby. And you can find all this information in the show notes. Um, But don't be afraid to comment if you have any more questions for Abby. That's right. We're excited about what, what will come for number three. (laughs) thanks everybody for listening yeah thanks stay tuned for number three when i interview becky 
I'm so scared. No, it's, it's going to be great. Well, I it hope everybody is. eats something wild today and have a wonderful day. That's right. Happy trails and happy foraging. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. Don't forget to check the show notes for all of the links from today's episode. Thanks so much to Tina and her pony for the use of their beautiful song, Medicine. I love hearing from all of you, so please leave me your comments. And if you like what you've heard, please rate and review this podcast and share with folks you know. You can keep learning and following my adventures on thewanderschool.com and the Wanderschool Facebook and Instagram pages. Happy wandering, foraging, and wildcrafting. Come on, everyone, and gather around. Listen to the soothing in this sound. I'm here to tell you that medicine don't come from a pill, it grows in the ground. The medicine we need grows all